On this episode, I'm speaking with Charles Thompson, account executive at Experian. Charles has been selling in some form for the last seven years and has found himself in the multifamily space for the last year. He sees sales as serving and loves that it can enable him to create and build meaningful and educational relationships. His difficult early life experiences now inform his personal brand, enabling him to communicate a story with others so they see him first as a person with a family, interests, and passions, and as a salesperson second. Charles is the father of four, and resides with his wife and family in San Diego, California. Without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Charles. Charles, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm glad that we're having this opportunity. Likewise, I appreciate being on, a, on the, the podcast. Well, let's jump right in. You, um, you told me a couple of weeks ago that you've had actually a really tough upbringing compared to many. And when I first heard the story, I was like, man, that's... Uh, that's that's really uh, it sets into perspective for me where you are today with your journey as a professional and I kind of just love digging into to background with people too so I'd love it if you would start off and, and tell us the tell us that story tell the listeners about that and whatever you're comfortable sharing uh, please dive in sure yeah so I'm, I'm one of five the second youngest and you know I grew up in a household that was full of drugs and um, gangs. It, I would say the majority of the older, the men in my family were in gangs of some sort. And um, my, my dad was um, not really around in my, in my life. So I don't have a ton of memories around um, my interaction with dad, but it really, um, what I do recall is like my older brother, older cousins, they were in gangs, they were doing drugs. My sister, the same thing. And you, we kind of lived a a um, free kind of life where we can do whatever we really wanted to. Um, mm. I probably would have would have been some kind of aspect of drugs or gangs if it wasn't for sports. And for me specifically, that was football. So I remember specifically um, at eight years old, um, I, I sat down and I told myself, "Hey, I can't do drugs or." being a gang because I'm going to be in the NFL. Now, Chris, we're, we're here talking <laughs> uh, on a podcast and I'm not in my million dollar mansion. So we, we know that, uh, I, that didn't happen, but that, right. that conviction, that belief as an eight year old was enough to, to really, uh, keep me out of a lot of trouble, um, uh, from time to time as, as my life was teetering to some of those bad decisions. Mm. Yeah. in in speaking to some of those, teeterings towards those bad decisions one of the things that you had mentioned to me was and i and i i'm a fan of tattoos don't get me wrong i have some yeah. tattoos myself but yeah um you mentioned that when you were about 11 years old your mom asked you if you wanted to get a tattoo and i was my jaw kind of dropped i was like yeah. what really yeah. um yeah. and so i know that as you were as you were a young kid kind of growing up you were sort of faced with these kind of awkward and 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 not you know 11 year old decisions in your life and it sounds like football ultimately became this silver lining for you um it kind of helped you with your involvement in school which i know we'll get there as well sure. um but when you when you got into football was it any particular aspect of the game that got you feeling like you were on the right track be it like coaches or fellow teammates or just the organization of it uh good question uh i would say at the time no right uh eight nine ten eleven twelve years old um didn't really have any insight there. But as I look back, I see the the common thread was always coaches. Now, the hard part to really discern or delineate at this time was did they, did they, did coaches give me more attention because I was, you know, a little bit better than some of the other athletes? Did they genuinely care? Was it a combination of, of the two? Uh, who knows? But I, but I, what I couldn't tell you is that uh, I can look at different, um, markers in my life and see coaches who would sit me aside and say, Charles, stop being a knucklehead, who would take me to go grab a bite when there maybe wasn't food in the house, who uh, could be a couch to, to sleep on when there might be unrest in the household. Um, even even more specifically, you know, you know, um, there was a point in time in my life from sophomore year to senior year where I lived with a coach, right? Um, and, and I, I, for those two years, I lived with a coach and, you know, I'm from San Diego. 
And I remember when I went to college all the time, and I might be going a little bit too far here, Chris, but I remember when I went to college um, on the East Coast, everyone was like, hey, the, yeah, like Charles is from San Diego. He has a butler. Um, and <laughs> and they would always, you know, make fun of me and I have a butler because San Diego is known with opulence and, you know, very wealthy people. It, but little did they know um, that, you know, my household was such that I, I lived with a coach because I was sleeping on a couch at my mom's house as a high schooler. Mm. And, you know, there was in a two bedroom apartment, you know, there's 10 to 12 people there. And just to even have a, you know, a, a square spot to do your homework was difficult. Yeah. So that that was a little bit of um, just how I saw coaches play in my life. But I apologize, Chris, if I, if I went a little bit too far. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, kind of tying back to the, the doing the homework piece, you mentioned to me that there there came a point when you were just kind of pulling in C's, maybe the occasional D here and there, um, you know, kind of sure. like not, not super focused on, um, on the schooling aspect of it. But this was actually a point where you, you recalled getting grounded for the entirety of spring break because of your performance. And that was a, like a, like a wake up call for you. Yeah. What was, what was that moment for you? Like, and kind of what were the circumstances around it? Yeah. So, uh, th this is a story that always sticks into my head because, uh, this was the moment, this was the day that I found out that uh, there were two forms of disseminating information as far as your report cards. So the first one, obviously, was I got it in my um, hand from my, my teacher, and I crumpled it into my backpack and said that no human being will ever witness what has occurred <laughs> on, yep. on this paper. And there was Ds, Cs, Fs, all aboard. Um, and so I, you know, put that somewhere safe where no one could ever see it. And I, you know, get back home and it's Friday, spring break is about to un unleash. And then my mom comes to me and says, hey, uh, I got, I just got your report card. And guess what? You're grounded for the entirety of spring break. Well, you know, my first thought is, is immediately like I've been ratted out. Someone has told on me. And so I go run back to that secret, you know, safe spot and find my beautifully crumpled, you know, report card there. And that's when I found out that, oh, teachers realize that there's shady kids who probably won't show their report cards to their parents. So they send it to them. <laughs> and, um, but that, that story for me was uh, very simple. You know, I had C's, D's, and S, not because I struggled academically. It was just, I just didn't do my homework. And if you look at most public school systems and middle school, high school, you do your homework, you get a B. So for me, I, I turned in a bunch of missing assignments. My teachers were very gracious. And those grades went up, you know, within, you know, a couple of weeks mm. of going back to school. But that was a super easy lesson to me, um, a hard or easy lesson, how you think about it, uh, that if I want certain things, and that certain thing for me was to enjoy spring break um, freely, that I have, there's certain things I, I need to do. And it taught me a lesson that my mom's always told me that, you know, you're free to do whatever you want but you're not free to choose your consequences. And, and that, uh, that has stuck to me forever. So mm -hmm. after that day, like school was always easy for me. School was never uh, an issue for me. And I think I was pretty blessed to learn that at that age because most of the athletes I was around and the situations I was in um, really struggled academically, really struggled to, to get to the place they wanted to, to go. So although they might have been a really good athlete, uh, academically, there was a lot of doors closed to them because they couldn't figure out that piece yeah. of the, the puzzle. So I want to jump ahead to your recruitment at Stanford because I think that's a really cool part of this story. Things start sure. to change for you. Um, yeah. it's, it's a unique uh, kind of wandering journey at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what... Uh, Actually, let me back up before we jump in, because <laughs> I remember you telling me that part of this story had to do with like a locational awareness thing. So um, <laughs> let's let's actually start there, because I think yeah. that's a great, great tee up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, football always was, was a part of my life. And, I, you know, as a as a junior, I started realizing that there might be a possibility that football could actually, you know, really open up some real doors for me as far as college. So Stanford starts to, to recruit me, you know, Stanford, Stanford. And this was a little bit before like they rose to the prominence that they are today. Right. Um, so they weren't quite as a household name as they are today. They were probably 
more akin to like Ivy League schools, which may help you understand why I'm going to say what I say next. So, you know, uh, it comes to the point in, in athletics, if you're not aware for the listeners, there's a point in time when a school recruits you and you typically have an official visit. And that official visit is you go to the campus on a formal level, you are wine and dine by the coaches and you get to go see the facilities, so on and so forth. So that, that happens for me for Stanford, right? Where Stanford, you know, wants me to go and visit. But I'm very, very ignorant of all things colleges. I'm kind of confused that I even have an opportunity to go to college. And I think Stanford is in on the East Coast. I thought they were Ivy League. And so I was completely confused that that they were just up north. I'm from San Diego um, in Palo Alto. And um, I realized that the Ivy League, if you didn't know this, listener, they're just a, a sports conference, just like the Pac-12 or the Mountain West or the Big Ten. They're just a conference who happen to have really intelligent schools in there. And so I thought, oh, Stanford's a really good academic school. They must be in Ivy League, and they also must be on the East Coast. Um, to my surprise, that I was very ignorant, and they are just about a couple-hour flight up north. And so that that was my my first experience with with Stanford. And really, uh, just to just piggyback on how ignorant I was, you know, typically there's a couple of things that I didn't know. I didn't know Stanford was in California, and I didn't know that. When you take your ACT or SAT, there should be a timing in which you take that. And for me, um, I took my SAT as a junior in college, uh, actually as a senior in high school, I apologize. And because I took it so late in the game, you're, there's a thing called the national letter uh, sign of intent. So you sign to the school that you think you're gonna be recruited to. Well, you need to take your SAT or ACT prior to that. And if you mm. don't, then it's, it's hard to sign. Um, they make that difficult. And I was in a place where I, I, only, I only took it one time, you know, my senior year, which pretty much put me out of the, the runnings for Stanford because I didn't do great on the SAT on my first, my first go around. And most of the kids I knew, as I asked, you know, uh, after I understood, they were taking their SAT as a sophomores in high school. Mm-hmm. And I gave them plenty of time to study, retake, and and go plan for the test. And I took it once before my national, you know, sign them letter intent. So that's one thing, those are a couple of things I learned, you know, just my experience, you know, interacting with uh, the Stanford. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities, brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, We see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. And so you you ended up not going to Stanford necessarily. You didn't have the the score to get into Stanford at the time. Um, But you you told me they gave you an option to go to a prep school. And so kind of that one thing led to another there. You, You did end up playing football collegiately, which is really cool. Yeah. Where did you uh, where did you end up and kind of what did you end up studying while you were also playing ball? Yeah, they didn't end up going to Stanford, uh, but the coach, Lance Anderson, still remember the guy, very nice guy, uh, introduced me to a, another coach at Bucknell University. Most folks on the West Coast may have never heard of it, but some of the Northeast listeners may be aware. Um, in Pennsylvania, probably about an hour away from Penn State, State College. Uh, played football there, played running back, enjoyed it, great time, played all four years. I actually studied business, um, which is very vague. Everyone knows that. It's yeah. very general. Um, then I, I minored in religion and philosophy and really uh, enjoyed my time there. Um, as I was considering or as I was graduating, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? What's that going to look like? How's that going to pan out? And I didn't really have any strong desires uh, to do anything specifically. And I th- a part of that is like business in general, right? You could literally do anything uh, yeah. with a business degree. So uh, I started considering and, and thinking about what could be possible opportunities and avenues. And someone reached out to me about Teach for America. And Teach for America is this program that uh, takes, you know, 
college graduates and pretty much puts them in pretty rough areas and allows them to essentially help out um, that school system with new blood. A lot of it's just like, hey, it's energy because you don't know a ton. You just graduated from college and you don't have mm-hmm. a teaching credential. And in that time, they allow you to go earn a teaching credential and possibly go be a, uh, a teacher in that in that uh, that school area. And so I was thinking about doing that. I was in a final interview. It's actually a really rigorous interview process. But one of the things that they were very um, specific on is that they wanted to take you into very high risk areas like Detroit. Right. Um, and they happen to be open up a San Diego area. Now, San Diego, as many of you know, that is pretty wealthy area, but there are some pockets that are, that are struggling. And I really wanted to uh, go to the San Diego branch because I have a, a younger brother and I really wanted to um, be able to be around him. He's about eight, nine years younger than I am. So at that time, I'm like 21. He's just about getting to high school. And yeah. really wanted to be a, a person to um, for him to look up to and really be the person to him that I didn't really have. I didn't have my older brother wasn't really around. My dad wasn't really around for me um, at that time. And I wanted to be that for him. So when I was very specific and saying, hey, I really want to go to San Diego. I don't want to go to Detroit or Chicago or, you know, what have you. I want to be in San Diego. That pretty much put me out there running for that. Um, because they were like, hey, like there's more high risk areas than Carlsbad, California, um, <laughs> and things like that. And which yeah. 100% makes sense. Um, and I'm being facetious. There's other bad places in San Diego. But that that was kind of, uh, that took me on a path to like the nonprofit space because it really got me thinking about like, what do I really want to do? And I've always thought about it this way, you know, in an ideal world with no bills, what would I do for free? That that was really how I thought about what I wanted to do with my time. And I still try to think about that. You know, I deal with no bills. What would I do for free? I try to let that question guide what I do for work, mm. because I think that helps me um, in doing what I love and um, spending time on what I'm passionate about. And that led me to an organization called Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, where really what I did there was I was a mentor, big brother. Um, to uh, high school athletes. So I got to coach with them. I got to train with them. I got to mentor them, um, guide them on all things, you know, spiritual um, workouts to academic to just like, you know, you should, you know, take a bath. Like all of that (laughs) kind of stuff was really what um, I was doing at that, at that time. And it was a rough job because it was right out of college or, you know, there's a couple oddball jobs before that, but right out of college. And ultimately what I, like, they gave me this job and they said, Hey, Charles, you have a job, but guess what? You need to raise all the money that you have, you, you'll get to, to live on. And I was like, well, that's not really a job. If I have to like ask people for money to, to live. And, and I, I was kind of struggling and around the same time, I'm about to get married and, or ask my, you know, um, wife's, my now wife's, you know, father for her hand in marriage. And I'm thinking about how am I going to convince him that, you know, I can somehow take care of his daughter and I don't even know if I'm going to have money, like legitimately, like right. I have to go ask people for money. Um, and so that was, those are all the turmoil that I was struggling at the time, but ended up raising around $200,000. In a couple of years, I was there, um, which was literally looking like, hey, reaching out to people like you, Chris, or um, businesses or churches or, you know, um, nonprofits and basically asking them to support um, what I'm doing. And they can do that obviously on a one time basis or on a monthly basis. And that was really the start of um, me getting my feet wet on some kind of salesy kind of uh, mm. um, interaction. Yeah, I, no, I, I love all of that. I mean, it's it's clear how much you care about community, you care about giving back. I think it shines through in, in what you're doing today as well. Even if the sort of the shell of, of like where you work isn't necessarily, you know, pointing to that directly, it's very clear that that is very important to you mm-hmm. um, with the content that you share and the stories that you tell. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously there came a point when you couldn't necessarily do that anymore. Your own family was growing. As you said, you got married, you started having a family 
you couldn't be, as you told me, you couldn't be hanging out with the athletes after school when you needed yeah. to be home, quote unquote, yeah. after school, right? Like yeah. to be with your family. So you're at Experian now, but I, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of those first sales jobs and, and what, um, what you found yourself in kind of, kind of cutting your teeth during those first few years. Cause I know it was a little bit all over the place, but I feel like in a roundabout way, you've really ended up in a place that makes sense. Um, so the first one was earnest packing of all places. Yeah. Um, yeah. tell us about, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, earnest packaging, uh, fun company um to really eccentric weird people like myself um my wife tells tells me all the time that she would have hated that job um but uh the reason why it was because you know you sold boxes you know so anything that you think that anything you would get in the mail from amazon the box the bubble wrap the peanuts um the tape on the box i sold and you know we we uh, differentiated ourselves with customer service. So um, not only did she, my wife tell me that she would hate that job, but she also made fun of me and said that I worked for Dunder Mifflin because <laughs> um, essentially I sold paper and you know we differentiated ourselves with customer service. And so I was constantly getting you know made fun of by my wife, um, which was fun and hilarious. And at that time, uh, believe it or not, I didn't really watch The Office. So I didn't quite, didn't oh, land man. as it should have. And then I've since watched it and now it completely makes sense. And it probably would have been much more endearing if I would have known. Okay. Um, well, real quick then what's, what's your favorite Dunder Mifflin scene or what's a favorite Dunder Mifflin scene that comes to mind from the show over the oh, years? Good, like good, good one. Um, so I'm not as cool as her. She could quote everything, but I would probably say, um, my favorite, uh, scene is the, um, the Dwight, Michael Scott, and Jim, and um, the uh, <laughs> um, the live the live uh, uh, what is it called? Like um, I guess mock call that oh, yeah. that uh, Dwight's doing with with Michael Scott and I guess in in Jim because Michael Scott kind of gets in there eventually, and mm -hmm. to me that's like hilarious because yeah. I, Michael Scott, Steve Corral, like that dude's like. Uh, idiot and right now i i couldn't even imagine in 2023 90 of the stuff that they had said could even fly on tv today yeah because i yeah. look at him like my goodness i can't believe you said that yeah. uh, it, it actually so makes me think of a michael scott face thinking about <laughs> thinking about some of the lines in that show for 2023 like just the, the cringe face of yes. Michael scott <laughs> yes 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 so but that's but i, I as a salesperson i think that it's, it's hilarious because sometimes you you get a manager in there who doesn't quite get it because they're they understand it but they're not quite in the trenches anymore and so michael scott is a funny as a salesperson he's funny to me because he, he's really good at sales and you see that from like the Applebee's scene and a couple other different things, but you can tell he's a little bit out of touch on a day to day because he's not in the trenches anymore. And so Dwight, obviously another great salesman, Jim, great salesperson. Um, but you can see that Jim was able to manipulate him because, because he's not really in the trenches and obviously it was right. really comedic things like that, but that's what you get a little bit in business, especially in sales, because usually the really good salespeople become managers. And, but the thing about sales, in my opinion, that it's very difficult to be really good at it consistently, the more you're out of it. You just can, like, you have to be in it. Um, mm -hmm. And and so you, you see that sometimes in just real life experiences with managers. And so I love that whole dynamic with Michael Scott because it's, it's this constant, like, struggle with Michael Scott kind of being out of touch with sales but also like randomly closing a huge deal as well. Yeah. And that's kind of like the whole dynamic of like Dunder Mifflin is super fun to, to see it. Cause it's kind of like that in real life sometimes. So how long did you, did you, were you in the Dunder Mifflin <laughs> e ecosystem? E ecosystem. Yeah. Six. So six months. So a huge six months and just so, so we're clear, like, um, and you see this a little bit in, in, um, the office, like, you know, they're going, they're, they're driving and they're going into businesses. So that's what I was doing. I was in a car. I was door knocking business to business, right? So I would go visit, you know, 20 locations 
on a daily basis. And basically I would have a, like a two week kind of rotation where I would go visit those businesses over and over and over. And the general kind of conception was that, you know, that person, that business wasn't open to having a conversation to, with you until the seventh to 10th visit. That was like the general numbers that you're oh, wow. getting. Uh, so did that for that time. And that was, you know, October, late October, 2019 to like March, 2020. And when I was there, it was, it was, it's a hard job. Like door knocking is not easy. So there was a lot of people um, who came in, a lot of people who came out as a result of the difficulty of the job. And um, I, I was, I was fine. I was doing okay. I enjoyed it. To me, it was like a, it was like another, it was like an adventure every time I went out to go interact with people. So I, I liked it. Yeah. Um, but we all know what happened in March 2020. We so, do. Um, like people are like selling toilet paper for hundreds of dollars. Like the mm -hmm. world is going like nuts. And mm -hmm. so not only that, but people are saying, Charles, I would rather you not come into my office. Um, and so now I'm trying to think about, okay, I thought this was like H1N1. I thought we were, would be okay after a week or two. It seems like this is a little bit different. And, and now I have to figure out where I'm at a company where their, their whole strategy of outbound is to go to, to places and meet with them, to businesses and meet with people in person physically. How do I, how do I make money? How do I, you know, feed my kids? And that's like when I started to, to read the writing on the wall to some capacity and start to think about, hey, I might need to figure out something different. And that's when I had an opportunity for a, another company who was actually a little bit closer locally and um, started working for them. And that was, that was a company called IDIQ. Before we jump into IDIQ, I have sure. to call back something that made me think of one of my favorite scenes in the office because I yeah. can't put that to bed just quite mm. yet. Um, but it was, you'd mentioned like going, uh, driving around and going door to door. And I remember one of my favorite scenes in the office is when Dwight and Jim are on a sales call together, they're driving around like same, same setup. And in order for like Dwight to get fired up and stoked about the sale, he's like gets in the back seat and like turns on his, uh, like metal music or whatever it is. And he's like rocking out in the back seat and punching the headrest of the seat in front of him. That was one of my favorite all time scenes. Yeah. I just imagine you now like getting hyped in the car, like, yeah. all right, man, let's go make the sale. Let's make it happen. Uh, um, so, and by, anyway. and by the way, I, I music to me is like a, a hype thing to me. So yeah. whether I'm at like a sales call or like at a conference, like, and I know at a conference, like I'm going to go talk to like the guy because that's why I like conferences because everyone's accessible. The CEO who's been ignoring you for six months, they're right there, right? Yep. And you can go and talk to them or you can go walk right past them and ignore them. Um, and so music, I think plays, for me personally, plays a big factor um, in, in my life. And my, my quick question, to, to, and then we can put it to rest for Dunder Mifflin. Is there any person um, or an office or in Dunder Mifflin that you resonate the most with as like they, that you feel like you are more like? Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> such a hard question. It's such a good question. Such a hard question though. Um, I, I don't know. Cause I think a lot of people around me would probably say it more like a gym, like kind of yeah. chill, low key, yeah. maybe yeah. a little bit like thinks he knows what he's talking about all the time, but like, Sometimes he doesn't, but I also okay. definitely have that Dwight piece where I like, I need to get hyped up and I need to get yeah. fired up. Cause I'm a little yeah. bit more of introverted personality, but sure. I still love that too. Like turn on the music that just connects and like, you're yeah. ready to go. Like you're ready to yeah. jump in and get, get after it. So, yeah. um, uh, good question. I would love that to be like a icebreaker question for <laughs> most people. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That, that, that was too much tangent. I just, I just thought I, I'd, I'd asked that. I was like, Oh, I've never asked that question. My no, that's great. <laughs> Um, so for I, for IDIQ, I mean, we start to get to a place here in your journey where you're getting around to this aspect of credit. And obviously now you're kind of in the credit world as it relates to multifamily to some extent, which kind of brings us full circle. But when you had this opportunity with um, IDIQ, um, first of all, what is that company and, and what was that world like for you as you were jumping into it? Yeah. Um, good, good question. So identity IQ, um, Really, IDIQ is, a, is their official name, but many of you know them by Identity IQ. And what they do is they sell um, credit products. Uh, and what I was doing when I was there, I was selling that B2B to C. So 
Um, some of the credit pox would be like credit monitoring that you, you see on a bunch of commercials, identity theft, um, credit score tracker, credit score simulators, things of that nature. If you have um, a Chase or a AAA or even Bank of America, you probably see some version of that. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be IDIQ, but it's the same similar product behind that. Um, that's that's what we were selling. So I was doing that B2B to C. So most of my job looked like was I would call financial advisors, credit repair companies, um, uh, tax advisors, and basically say, hey, we would want to offer to your clients um, at no charge, at no cost to your business, uh, our our product. And when your clients enroll into that product, we'll pay you on a residual basis. And mm-hmm. so the really the the value proposition in there for them was, hey, um, you can have an additional source of revenue by your clients enrolling into this. And the the value proposition for us was, you have a relationship with your clients that I don't I don't currently possess. So instead of me trying to find them and sell to them, how about they they listen to someone they already trust and they already know, and you sell that to them. And that that pretty much was the like mm. the 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 crux of the whole situation um now the reality was that it was such a it was such a a a easy um sell in the sense that if that person found that valuable it could happen very quickly so it really was a numbers game so when i was at that job i was like making 150 200 cold calls on a day-to-day basis because it, it was simply like a matter of like if i got to that person uh, and it was like it was alignment between their business and our business. It made a ton of sense because you're basically saying, "Hey, business, uh, I will pay you for something that your clients are probably using already, and you're and you're you're seeing no revenue from." And um, when it's that situation, and that's kind of like I would say sales in a very like simplistic sense, like you just you know dial and smile. That sells. And then as you get to more complex sales, it's okay, let's be more strategic in there. But for me, it was like, I have all these people, financial advisors, tax advisors, credit repair businesses, let's go reach out to them and let's go see if I can get them on the phone. If I can get them on the phone, I can close them. Yeah. And and this was a time when, um, from my knowledge of your, of your story, LinkedIn really started to come into play. Obviously it's a platform that you've gained a lot of traction on. Uh, People look to you for your posts quite often. I think it's been a big big thing for you, move the needle, you know, personally and professionally, was there a specific shift or change in attitude that ultimately led you to want to use that platform almost on a daily basis, if not on a daily basis? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I apologize because I'm, I'm now I'm thinking about the offices in my mind and I, I just, <laughs> that's fine. Um, where <laughs> Michael Scott uh, has the, the leads from Sabre and he loses them and yeah. the, the trash can. And that's kind of how I started going on LinkedIn. I we were getting leads, and the leads weren't what I needed. Um, it was difficult to get phone numbers and people on traction. And LinkedIn is this weird thing where nearly anyone's accessible. It's like a really big conference, mm-hmm. except for you don't have to go anywhere to to go meet those people, and you can go find them and you can go talk to them. And so for a lot of the people that I was calling into, financial advisors, um, tax advisors, those people were not only accessible. They wanted you to reach out to them because they're kind of like salespeople in some capacity. You know, the more tax advi- uh, the more tax advisor talks to someone, our financial advisor talks to someone, the more money they, they get as well. Their business is more profitable. So I found that, A, my, my lead source wasn't great, but LinkedIn was this great lead source where I can go really touch and interact with anyone. So that that was like, okay, let's let's try to figure out how I can like leverage this better. So that was like the first, like, oh, the light bulb went on. Oh, I, I can use this better. And it, it started just as, as that, like very simplistic. Let's use uh, LinkedIn to get more leads. Mm. And then it was like, oh, like not only is uh, LinkedIn like a source for me to get leads, but it's, it's this weird thing where I have the, uh, the ability to to get in front of really high profile individuals in a meaningful way yeah. and that's that's when i i started to post more and as you kind of alluded to um what what 
what, you know, my daily process with LinkedIn. And I'll, and I'll just go into that just very briefly. Yeah. You know, as I look at LinkedIn, as I, as I think about LinkedIn, I think my first thought about LinkedIn, I think most salespeople, maybe most business owners, first perspective of LinkedIn is this is lead generation. And I think that's a, um, a overly simplistic way to think about LinkedIn. I think about LinkedIn again, like a really big conference and a really big conference doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to come away with a hundred leads. So you have people at a conference who have a booth who just want to, you know, create awareness that you have people at, at a conference who, um, they come and they actually don't want to create, create awareness. They don't want to get leads. They just want to know more information. You have people at a conference who, um, come there and all they want to do is get leads. You have people there with some mixtures all in between there. And so now you have the ability to go say, okay, um, LinkedIn is all of those, right? But it's not just one of those. But now you have to think about like, okay, well, how does that relate to my business today? So if you're selling a half million dollar product, are your, is your ideal customer, are they going on LinkedIn and saying, I'm trying, I want to buy a half million dollar product? Yeah. Maybe not. But if your product is a super easy plugin, you know, a couple hundred bucks, maybe they are, right? And so you should, it's going to be different for every person. But for me, I'm in enterprise sales. Um, I, I'm selling large ticket items and the sell cycle is six to eight months. So for me, what I think is a much more meaningful way to approach LinkedIn is demand generation. And that demand generation is for Charles who happens to work at Experian. Mm -hmm. um, I want people to have a desire to work with me, whether that's personally, you know, they might want to do a, a, a side venture or that's like, you know, business and they want to, you know, be a client of Experian, whether that's, hey, they want to, you know, work at Experian or maybe I can, you know, help them break into sales. Often I have people reach out to me and say, hey, you know, how do you get into sales? Like, can you help me out? Can you mentor me to some capacity? Or um, it, it just might be a situation where um, I can refer them to a company and, and vice versa. They can refer me to a company. Uh, and that's why I think the conference mentality is just much more of a, a healthy or helpful way to consider LinkedIn, because that's what you see at conferences. You have real people interacting with real people and, yeah. and you, you let the opportunities that uh, result from that happen as they may. But, you know, lead generation, I think, is a little bit too static and a little bit too cold to consider uh, LinkedIn mm -hmm. because you're dealing with humans yeah. and no one wants to feel like they're just a, a lead, in my opinion. It, well, if you don't mind me asking, I'd, I'd love to hear what your daily or weekly practices with LinkedIn. I'm always really curious from um, other content writers or content creators that have found a nice niche in LinkedIn what their, what their approach is. Cause I think it's so different for everybody. Sure. Do you have something that you kind of do on the regular that allows you to sort of stay locked into the platform? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I actually just, uh, read a, a, a post that, um, kind of, uh, made me feel bad because I, 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 I do this often, but they talk about posting ghosts and, and this is like a, this is my general posture of LinkedIn because LinkedIn is, um, like a conference, like anything else, you can get lost in it. It's addicting. It's, like, it's social media. And so I have a scheduler um, that I use on a consistent basis to schedule my posts. And so I post every day, 5 a.m., you know, Pacific Standard Time uh, every day, and then uh, our Monday through Friday. And then um, on the weekends, I, I give some people some little rest and I post around 8, 8 a.m. Pacific Standard mm -hmm. Time, but I do it every day. And um, with the scheduler, excuse me, uh, with the scheduler, what I, what I like to do is, um, get all my notes down. So I never feel the need to, um, to only put a post down or schedule it when it's ready. So I like to have a lot of rough notes and this is how I always been as a, as a writer. So if I'm, if I'm going to write an essay, I, I like to mind dump on the paper and get it there. And then I'll just kind of tease it out as it comes, but I would rather have something there because it makes me feel a little more accomplished there. So today I have literally 25 posts scheduled for, you know, the next month of July. Um, they're all scheduled. 
but most of them are intelligible. Like you, you would not be able to understand at all what I'm saying. I can, but you would be like, this is garbage. You might still think it's garbage, yeah. but like <laughs> you think it's more garbage based on, on what it's like. But for me, it's important to have it down there because as a, as a prototypical salesperson, I think of administrative skills, like doing something consistently over time. And so for me to be able to schedule it, that helps me do it that way. And then when I, as a content creator, when I get bored or disinterested or just fatigued, I know that I need to do a better job of ingesting good material to be inspired. Right. I think that um, sometimes I do get bored. Sometimes I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a hassle to write and to put out thoughts. Um, but I think that sometimes that is because I'm just ingesting really like weak material. I think we all ingest material, but -hmm. it's just like super like disinteresting, like, um, you know, mine, like garbage. And, but the more I listen to like thoughtful teachers and speakers and, um, uh, podcasts and like that, that helps me ingest more content. And, um, and then as I ingest more content, I'm more inspired because I'm like, oh, like that thing is really important. And I know that there's someone that can, can benefit from that. And one thing I want to say a little bit, if anyone is out there and there are, they, they want to start writing on LinkedIn, they want to start um, engaging people on content. I will say the best thing you can do today, if you want to start um, writing on LinkedIn is not write on your own posts, right? Um, but to comment on people's posts. And I say that because it doesn't require you to come up, out, come up with something from zero, from scratch. That person has already given you the raw material. Now you go in post meaningful responses to that person. And as a salesperson, the best way you can do this, if you're saying, hey, I want to be a thought leader in cybersecurity, identity theft, credit monitoring, whatever it might be, you have your specific industries, you know, find the hashtag, find the, the, the influencer in that space and um, hit the notify, notify, notification bell. So, you know, every time they post, be the first comment on there and post something meaningful to them, like it, respond. And it can't mm-hmm. just be awesome. Good job or thanks. It has to be something meaningful that you thought about. And, and I promise you, um, that'll be your starting of, of, of um, writing on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I would probably say that that piece of engagement on LinkedIn is probably more meaningful even than posting yourself. And I say that because if you watch, you know, I'm a big sports person, as many of you know. So if you watch House of Highlights or any kind of viral video on Instagram, most of us, immediately go to the comment section after we watch that video. And then we start to interact with the comments or at least read the comments because community is in the comments. That's where you actually build a real relationship with other people. And um, and so if you want to start building that community and start to be seen and start to have engagement, you start in the comments, right? Um, I do a bad job, and I, as I alluded to a little bit before this tirade, is I just post and I ghost a little bit. Like I, I, I could do a pretty good job of posting, but the real hard thing is to engage in comments because that's how you build a community, right? You build a tribe of people that you interact with, that you you uh, support them and they support you. You're you're excited for what they're going to write and vice versa. You're you're excited that their company just got this award and they just got this award and it's, that's community, right? You're excited for other people genuinely just because um because because you're for them and vice versa yeah and i think that's that's the 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 real trick of social media right like where you can build a tribe of people who are like i'm just genuinely like pumped for you just because like i'm i'm for you yeah so uh, that that was a little bit uh tangent there but i think that's helpful um no i think i think it is i think it is and i i totally align with that because i i i firmly believe in the hundred true fans or the thousand true fans theory Mm -hmm. where you don't necessarily need a million people following you or tuning into what you're saying. If you just have, you know, a few hundred folks that you, you grow over, you know, a certain amount of time. I mean, that's, that's all it really takes to to move the needle. And, and, and so I want to, I want to use that to pivot into 
where you are today, because as I've gotten to know you better, I feel like where you've landed is such a nice fit for where you are today. And it's based on your background. It's based on your desire to educate, to inspire people, to really like shepherd people. And, um, there, there's this trifecta or maybe even more than trifecta connection that happens here with regards to where you are, the industry that you help serve, be it, you know, multifamily real estate kind of, you know, renters and your ability to share stories, tell stories, inspire people, inspire action. Let's talk about Experian. What's this role meant to you so far? And, and what are you excited about with the work that you're doing today? Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, I, I love that question. And, and it goes back to that, um, that question that I, I said, I asked myself, you know, as I was going into the nonprofit space, it's like, Hey, like Charles is an ideal world with no bills. What would you do for free? Um, well, you know, experience just put out a, you know, a, an initiative at our, our sales kickoff where, you know, all our kids, we asked our kids, like, hey, like, what does daddy do for work? And, you know, my my kids, all of them, they said um, that the, unanim the unanimous response was dad just eats all day and talks to his, his friends at work. That's what dad does. <laughs> and so when so that answers my question of, you know, ideal world, when no bills, what would I do for free? I would eat all day and I would talk to my friends. Um, <laughs> and I'm just being a little bit facetious there. But I think that's, um, you know, what I enjoy experience because, you know, that that story is unrelated to experience, except for it is. There was a, a video that was put out about how do you involve your kids and to like, what, how do they see your role on a day-to-day -day basis? And I don't, that, that, that makes me proud of a company that cares um, to involve my, my, my children. And that my children will probably remember to some capacity this whole exercise being done. And then that whole video that I made was, you know, strung together with uh, thousands of other experienced employees and we all got to see it. And we, we felt connected to each other in a, in a way that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. And, um, but, you know, as an aside of like experience, I, I came from a, a, a low income family um, where we just didn't understand finances. We didn't, we didn't get it. And, you know, we would do the, the, the same things over and over and over and expect a different, you know, response, you know, the definition of insanity. And um, somehow through sports, I, I was able to, to become a first, you know, generation college graduate. And um, as a first generation college graduate, I was afforded more, much more opportunities. But even after I graduated and I was now educated, you know, I get my first apartment and, you know, they get at that time, they gave you an option to um, uh, to ask for your credit report to be sent to you. And I was and I got my credit report because I was curious and I had zero concept or clue as to what went into the numbers that I got. Um, there were all misconceived notions as to all, how that goes. So although I was educated, I was still ignorant uh, as to what went into my credit. Mm. And so one of the things that I'm excited about Experian and, and why that was a, a, a really attractive opportunity to me was because I, I see that you could still be an educated person in America and still have zero concept of credit. Now, it may mm. not affect you as much because you have more money to play with um, as opposed to someone who's low income. It, it still is a sad fact that you have really wealthy individuals who are, are just in a uh, really bad place financially um, mm -hmm. as far as their ability to handle their finances because they don't understand their credit or they don't understand even how to manage their finances. Um, and then you have like the low income people who are like, like they don't even understand how to get, get ahead or, you know, get from where they are now because yeah. it's almost as if, everyone has a ball to play at the playground and then, and they don't even understand the rules of the game. So yeah. they, they can't even get in and, you know, go play wall ball with everyone else because like, they just don't get it. They don't know where it is. And so I love um, experience for that fact, because, you know, we, like the, we pride ourselves at teaching people how to build credit, how to understand credit, like making it less cryptic and demystifying credit. Cause it shouldn't be complicated. Um, but I think it is complicated for many people because um, high school, middle school, parents, system, 
you blame it on whoever you want, but it, people are not being taught it. I'm going gonna... to go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, and I was just going to say, explain like very quickly, like all credit is, is it's just saying, Hey, um, Charles, um, loan money to Chris and, um, Charles asks another buddy of Chris, let's say Rob, um, um, for money as well. Well, Rob reaches out to you, Chris, and he says, hey, did Charles pay back that money? And if he did, did it take three years? Did he pay it back when he told you? And Rob needs some kind of assurance that if he loans money to me, that he's going to get it back. Mm-hmm. And ultimately that's all credit is and i think that there's a misnomer and it's like it's confusing to people because people are are, are often you know, people like at conferences people always ask me like hey you work at our experience can you fix my credit um that's people ask me that all the time <laughs> like literally all the time and, and they're being facetious in some capacity i think some people are serious too but we're really just the ledger right we're just demonstrating oh like did you Pay your bills did you not pay your bills and um now there's some aspects of of just the system of credit historically speaking that are, st- are that we are starting to see that we didn't see you know in the past that we're trying to um fix right um one of those things is that we have a product called experian lift and experian lift our experian boost and experian go and some of those products are really put in place for immigrants Right. So if you came over to the States, our credit system is super weird. Like not, so it's not only just weird to us here, but they're like, you want me to go into debt to to prove right. that I'm good with credit, even though mm-hmm. I pay all my bills. That's weird. Um, like and so we have products like that that are hoping are helping to um, recognize what we call um, credit invisibles, people who like don't have any credit and give them credit so they can. And actually start playing in our financial system right and i, and I like to think of it as a game like mm. it's a game because you come over here as an immigrant and you're like why do i want to play that game that doesn't seem very fun yeah i don't want to play that game um and especially like you know some of the some african countries um like it's really bad to have debt um america is really weird but we think that is a kind of a good thing and so it's kind of counterintuitive to some people but those are things that we're putting together. But you, you were having a question, Chris, as well? Well, I was going to say, I was going to go where, where boldly no man has gone before. And I was going to call back the office for a third time in this podcast. <laughs> and I, w- I was going to relate it to a scene where Michael says, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. Explain, <laughs> ex- explain it to me like I'm five. Yeah. And what I'd love to get your perspective on from someone in the credit space, you already started to do this, but also as someone in multifamily who engages with owners and operators, and and you're trying to make sure that those renters have some of these tools at their disposal. What would you say are your like top two or three takeaways for building credit? Can you, are there any education bombs here that you can drop at that five-year-old level? Just, just in case someone's listening, who's like, I don't really know that myself. I wish he would maybe give me some insights and some help. What would be a couple takeaways that come to mind? Good question. Um, so I think always um, pay your bills, right? Um, we know that, like pay your bills. Um, I would say if you, like generally you know yourself, like if you're honest, you know if you are a spender or a saver, right? If you are a spender, um, I would say you probably don't need credit cards. You probably want to go to Dave Ramsey away, right? Um, so I, I did Financial Peace University um, and I wouldn't agree with everything with Dave Ramsey because Dave Ramsey would tell you, cut all your credit cards. I would say that if you are a spender and you are in a, a huge amount of debt, you probably should cut all your credit cards, right? That's probably a good spot for you until you can get the, the wherewithal to um, have good habits regarding spending. But um, most of credit card, um, most of credit woe is because we are um, our eyes, you know, my mom used to always tell me like, your, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you go into the food line, you know, maybe the buffet, um, and you get this huge mound of stuff and you eat like a quarter of it. 
And, and in the same capacity with our finances, you know, we live in a, a capitalistic society that is intended to, for you to buy stuff. And it used to be that it, that was intended for you to buy stuff in store. Now it's intended for you to buy stuff from your couch, which puts us in a very perilous situation mm-hmm. because we are just buying stuff like all the time. So um, I would say um, pay your bills, live within your means, right? Um, so, you know, for multifamily renters, I'm from California. I live in California. And it was a point in time where my rent was more than half of my take home, right? Gross. That meant that I needed to be very meager on what I bought because as I budgeted, like half of my my take home was just, just out no matter what because of rent. So I had very little things that I could do. So I would say um, pay your bills. Um, uh, um, don't spend more than you make and budget. Like do some kind mm. of budget. There's a lot of free budgets out there that will help you do two a little bit better, right? Because I think that, like, my suspicion is that most people just, um, like, don't know where their, their money goes. So they're like, dang, why don't I have any money this month? Like, I just got paid. And they're just so confused. But I remember, like, specifically a, two, a couple years ago, I was like, dude, why don't I have any money? And I went through and I did all the math. And I was like, I'm spending, like, 800 bucks going out every month. Like, mm. and I'm like, this is like, like not that many kids. Like now I got a lot of kids, so that might be normal. But <laughs> like, I had like one or two kids and I was just, I was, I just wanted to go out. And so I think that once you get a clear picture, and I think that this is how I think about credit, right? So if you're in multifamily, you know, all the, the way that credit plays a role for you is that as a landlord, you want a clear picture of who you're doing business with. So if I have someone as a landlord come and sleep in my room, I just want to know what their credit's like. So I have a good idea of like, are they going to pay me or not? Not only that, I want to know if if they just robbed the liquor store, I would just like to know that, right? Um, you want a good picture of who you're dealing with as they're coming into your house. And for, for you as, um, as a, a person dealing with credit or your tenants dealing with credit, you want, like, we need to have a good idea of our finances. Because if we don't understand like where money is going, meaning that every year or every month, my money has a home, right? It has to go to, it has to, go to this person, it has to go to this person, and every, every dollar has a place. And so I make sure I assign that. Now, that's the hard part, right? So the reason why people stink with their finances is because it's because handling your finances are, is complicated. It, is, um, it changes on a monthly basis. And we want very convenient automated uh, solutions. Now there are some out there, right? That will go and automate it for you. And I would so say, go look at them. Like go look at some of those automated sources. Experian has one. A lot of people use our, our free one. Mint has one. Um, there's a couple out there. Well, it'll go and say, okay, you'll you'll um, you log into your account, and then it'll say, this is your expenses. This is your your take home pay. Guess what? You're spending way too much money. <laughs> You need to stop spending money mm-hmm. and they'll tell you that. Right. But I would say have some plan in place. I, I, my, my suspicion is that many of us just have no plan. And sometimes that's okay because you're making enough money. Uh, but I think sometimes something happens and it throws a wrench in our plans. And, and now we are a little bit put in a, you know, rock in a hard place. Yeah. So um, I would say, you know, spend less, um, pay your bills, have some kind of money management, like plan and strategy in place, budget. If you got to go old school Excel, go Excel. Um, but I, I would actually recommend that like some kind of um, like YNAB, Mint, um, Experian offer like is better because what it's going to do is it's going to take your transactions and go put them somewhere for you on online. And Excel is hard because it's static. So you're going to say, oh, I spent $7 at Aldi, $7 at Wagmans or whatever it is. And it's going to be difficult to actually, um, it's going to be different, difficult for you to actually manually put it in there. You're going to want that to be automated. So for us, like, you know, we talk about all the AI, you know, you, we want to use AI and, and automation as much as possible. So we don't have to be stuck in doing the rudimentary stuff. But 
you also need to understand that AI will never replace humans, in my opinion, because there's, there's unique things that only we can do. But let's use it as much as possible. If it can make your life easier and more you know, convenient, let's use it. And so that would be my, my top three. I think that, um, and also like lastly, just realize you're in a capitalistic society that um, is trying to figure out how I can get your money, right? Absolutely. The the day, like there's a bunch of businesses that are either saying, hey, how can I get your money or your time, right? And so know that. And I think we do know that. I just think that we, we kind of forget. So we are like, oh, I'm really... You know, I really want a burger. Well, you probably just got primes to that burger. Like this is this is marketing that play. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you want that burger, but maybe it was really good marketing. You know, copy there as well. Um, but that's probably a little too much tangential. But I would that's what I would kind of say for multifamily, how I would kind of handle credit. And I think that um, credit is going to be um, much more of a player in the next kind of couple of years because I'm hearing big PMSs start having more conversations about credit and how, because there's, they interface with tenants so often and they're starting to yeah. ask for it. I'm, I'm, I imagine it's going to start becoming more of a big thing in, in, um, in multifamily. Yeah. Yeah. No, super helpful, super helpful tips. And I think I agree. There's been a lot more emphasis on credit across multifamily over the last couple of years, definitely seeing some tools pop up and some um, aspects of larger platforms that are focusing on those credit aspects on behalf of renters. Super helpful. Um, Charles, this has been really, really, uh, really enlightening and really fun to chat with you. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, I always love the last couple questions here cause it's like a rapid fire. Um, yeah. give me what you got kind of situation. So, yeah. um, couple fun ones for you just to end up here. I want to, I want to hear from you cause you've had so many cool experiences in your life, best movie of all time, but that has to do with credit hit yeah. me with what comes to mind. Yeah, so that that's that's a hard question. Um, I was looking at, it, I was thinking about like, man, is there one? I don't know. Um, that so the two movies that came to mind for me, um, and this is cheating a little bit. Um, my best movie of all time that has to do with not credit but money is Pursuit of Happiness, um, yep. and sells a little bit as well. Um, and for me, that like I cried in that Will Smith movie as a dad, like that thing just um, that brought me to tears. So that that's mm-hmm. number one. And then two is Tetris. So Tetris just came out, um, and it's it's a movie that if you ever if you haven't watched it yet, he he needs to build some kind of like line of credit with the owner of, of Nintendo um, in order for him to actually get the rights of Tetris. Now it's mm. not traditional credit, but all it, it's 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 untraditional credit where he needs to say he needs to go to Nintendo and say, "Hey, I'm good for it, and can you actually put your name for me?" So I can actually get the right of Tetris. And that's kind of like the story of Tetris where he kind of goes in there and he works some relationships where he can just parlay after some like some networking to actually go get the rights to go buy Tetris. Mm. So, and I never knew that until about six months ago when it came out on, on Apple TV. And I think that's a really fun one to watch as well. I didn't either. Okay. Yeah. That's really great. Great recommendation. What about a book? I don't know. Are you a big reader? Are you an avid reader at all? But, but tell me, tell me your favorite book that you would recommend to listeners yeah. and obvious, obviously why? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big reader in a weird way. I'm a big audiobook listener. Um, so I haven't really read a bunch of physical books as of late, but my favorite book, um, one of my favorite books is, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, um, David and Goliath. And essentially the premise on that is that all your disadvantages are actually advantages. So he kind of talks about, you know, um, the challenge of like maybe as someone grown up poor, right? Like maybe like myself and maybe, you know, become like somewhat upper class, middle class, whatever it is. And the challenge of, um, or the reality that they were successful because of the challenges they had or the disadvantages that they had growing up. Mm-hmm. And he also talks about, about the caveat of, well, how do you actually make your kids successful? Because they no longer possess those disadvantages that you had as a right. kid, right? And so you see this like in professional athletes often, right? Professional athletes often come from rags to riches. But then the challenge is like, how do you actually manufacture the the turmoil that you had as a kid um, for your kids? Because they don't have it. Like your your right. dad's a professional athlete, right? Um, so it's a, it's a super unique book because of that, because it talks about, those outliers that you never really thought about. And um, and 
and it kind of gives you a little psychological insight into like success. Yeah, man. I feel like we could do a whole separate podcast with some dads <laughs> and talk about how to, how to address that question. That yeah, kind of hit yeah. me, that hit me in the gut a little bit, but, um, <laughs> We'll have to do that another time. Yeah, be Charles, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. There's only one more thing to do for you, and that is to roll out the red carpet. Tell the world what you're up to, where they can find you online and, and follow up with you if they want to do that. Yeah. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, thanks for listening in, everyone. I'm with Experian. I basically work in, um, I do all things rental. So most of my, um, most of my focus is on screening solutions. So identity verification credit profiles, verification of income, background history. That's typically my my uh, my day-to-day. And um, where you can find me, I'm, I'm often on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out, uh, send me a, a, a note, DM, reach out that way. That's that's the majority of my, my presence. Would love to interact with many of you guys in person. And if there's anything I can do, please reach out. Um, I, I think it's, it's fun, all the people you get to meet. Um, doing LinkedIn. Like I said, it's a, it's a big conference to me. Awesome. Charles, thank you so much again. No problem. Thank you guys.